welcome back to Meeting Musos. I'm Mark McDonald, and in this week's episode, I sit down for a chat with Mike Osborne, better known as Ozzy. It's difficult to know where to begin when introducing him. Uh, he's a drummer and a percussionist, and he's played with everyone from the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, Van Morrison, Tom Jones, Gregory Porter, Mark Knopfler, and Bette Midler as well as playing on a host of TV shows, including Parkinson, Cold Feet and Blue Peter. As well as that, he's had a busy career in the West End, playing on shows including Guys and Dolls, 42nd Street and High School Musical, and somehow manages to balance it all with a busy teaching career, as well as working as a composer. And he has recently written and recorded the graded syllabus for the Trinity College of Music. As you'll hear in the conversation, he made my job very easy because I didn't have to say much at all. I think you'll really enjoy this one. Firstly, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. Um, You're welcome. You're welcome. uh, I love that when when I asked you to do it, your response was... Even if you can't play music at the moment, you can definitely talk about it, and I know that that's true. So, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, try shutting me up, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really looking forward to hearing just like more about your your story, um, you know, how you got to where you are, and I'm sure there'll be many a showbiz anecdote along the way. <laughs> I'd have to keep them clean, and I've already consulted my lawyers, so they're listening in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's good. Let's just why don't we start right at the very beginning? Because I know that you. It's a very good place to start, Mark. As they say, yes. Uh, and I know that you, you grew up in a musical household. Your mum was a professional musician. So was it inevitable, really, that you would become one as well, do you think? It was, actually. My mum uh, was a pianist, very, very good pianist. And she still plays, and she's 85 now. And she still regularly, every afternoon, does a little concert for my dad, which is lovely. Uh, I normally take myself to another room. <laughs> but she is a fantastic, fantastic uh, musician. She is... Um, she um, got a scholarship to the Trinity uh, School of Music, College of Music, um, when she was quite young, purely on her playing skills. She was a, a very, very good uh, place by ear, and she's, um, she's accompanied many sort of famous people over her career, but mostly as a personal pianist. She's not a great sight reader. She has the same, I suppose you'd say, affliction as me. It's a thing called dysmusia, where um, you look at, say, if you're looking at the treble clef, if I see... Uh, and an F, which is obviously in the F space, my brain wants to play an A uh, in my, you know, that way around. And then if I see in the in the bass clef, if I see an A, my brain wants to play an F. It's like my hands also sort of want to go the opposite way from each other. It's very difficult. Um, it was something that was diagnosed when I was at music college, but I always knew that I was terrible at sight reading. When I did my grade six, I got sort of highest marks for all the pieces and everything. And when it came to the sight reading, the examiner was a little bit <laughs> amazed that I was so bad because basically I sort of memorised the first four bars and then they were brilliant but the rest of it because I've memorised it and after that it was like I might as well have had boxing gloves on it wasn't, wasn't <laughs> good and she said to me she said do, um, do you have what I think called it word blindness but it was you know dyslexia I'm slightly dyslexic but I didn't know that it was something that was, would affect my music because I, obviously I could read the treble clef and read the bass clef so only when they came together it was complete carnage um, and she said, would you like some extra time? And I said, well, I'll be honest with you, I'll just memorise a few more bars. 
And she said, does your piano teacher know about this? And I said, well, not really. She just hits my hand with a ruler when I make a mistake. <laughs> so, which wasn't particularly conducive to being a concert pianist. But, um, but I knew from that, from that stage that it would be problematical um, to be you know, a, a pianist. Although I love playing the piano and I do a lot of even my composition. I use the piano, I can play from ear, I can accompany by ear. And if I learn a piece, I've got a very good memory but if you put literally a, a grade two sight reading piece in front of me, as my children have done, and just laugh because it's like <laughs> they say, come on, Dad, you're a great pianist. They say, listen, I'm not, they think I'm trying to put it on like Les Dawson, but it's not. It's a, it's a real problem. Only when I'm playing the piano. Um, if I'm playing xylophone or, or anything with treble clef, it's fine. And if I'm playing any sort of like bass marimba or, or timpani parts, not a problem. So it's only it's literally only when when the two clefs are going in tandem that your brain wants to switch them around. Yeah, yeah, and it's a really really bizarre thing. Um, wow, uh, it's quite rare. Um, when I was at music college, it was um, it was sort of diagnosed. They had a uh, somebody there who who you know knew about these things. I'd never heard of it before, but it was quite nice to have uh, <laughs> a label because <laughs> I've got a label. Um, <laughs> But I've learnt, I mean, bizarrely, when I look at drum parts, uh, it's, it's actually not a problem, even because it's all on one stage. So it's, it's not, not the slightest problem yeah. with reading drum parts, but, um, or percussion parts for that matter. But it's only when it goes across two stages that I really struggle. The best thing that happened with me was because my mum could obviously see that I was a good pianist, and I, I, I got, got to grade six by the age of 13. And I, I gave it up because I, I, I just couldn't bear having to learn all the pieces of grade seven. Uh, by by rote by memory. Although I, I I the process is very very slow. When I got to the end of it, it was lovely because I completely and utterly um, memorised it. And then you can play. I think once you know the music, then you can actually play the real feeling. Um, the lady who, my, who was my examiner, she said um, I, I was completely amazed that you've learnt all your pieces. She said you didn't even over, open the book. And she said you play so musically. She said and I mean they don't talk a lot in the exam, but she said but I, she said I must say that. I've heard these pieces played um, all day for the last week. And she said, but you brought something new to it. She said, if it was really like, um, you, you've got, obviously got a musical talent. And I love playing. I mean, once I've learned it, because then suddenly you've taken away the, the elephant in the room because I've, I've memorised it. And mm. I've found that over my career, I've, I've sort of had to do that. If I, if I know that I've got something, if I can prepare it, then I'm fine. But obviously there wasn't a chance in hell that I was going to be a, a pianist. <laughs> because I knew that I wouldn't be able to overcome that. But my mum, who's fan- you know, a fantastic ear, uh, ear player, she can hear anything and just play it back, um, she showed me how to play from chords, because I, I was always playing the piano, even though I'd given up piano lessons, and obviously I was doing a lot of drumming then. Um, but I used to love to sit at the piano, and I used to spend my uh, pocket money on um, you know, saving up and buying like El- Elton John anthologies, and I would try and work them out you know, exactly as the piano part was written. Because I love the music, Billy Joel, things like that. And then my mum, I said to my mum, what are these things above the, you know, the, the, you know, these little things? But it was the tab, the guitar tab. She said, well, they're the chords. And she showed me how, you know, to play chords. And then suddenly it was like the scales were lifted because with my left hand, I knew what the, I could just play from memory what the scales were. And the right hand, I'd play the, you know, the melody roll, which was no problem because I was then only looking at the, the treble clef. And yeah. still be able to play chords, and that's how I sort of overcame things. Then, once you, as you know, once you learn chord prog- uh, progressions, you're up and running. Because there are, I mean, how many pop songs are written three or four chords? Nowadays, yeah. just one chord. But I, and actually, I, I make it a, a, a matter of course when I'm when I'm teaching. Well, I did it with my own children, but if I'm teaching uh, like tune percussion, 
I nearly always get the students into it if they're, if they're young students. I get them in by, by teaching them, you know, the, the basic, you know, the three-call trick, you know, called one, four, and five, you know, mm-hmm. basic blues in, in, in a way. But once mm-hmm. they get that affinity to, to, to reading from chords, it makes a lot of music makes far more sense. And for me, it was the way that I, um, I managed to, 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 I mean, I, I still play keyboards, obviously, for, for composing and things, and for my own fun. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of going on a, a gig, although I have done a couple of times. <laughs> um, but that's fine if you're playing like sort of covers and things like that. You can you know, play from chords and comp, and that's not a problem. But uh, as I say, put a great one piano <laughs> siren in, in front of me. It's quite good fun. Um, but that was it. And I suppose that, that I can be very grateful to my mum for that because it, it suddenly, it, it, instead of being this big... Um, this thing that was going to hold me back because I always wanted to be do something in music. Um, well, sort of. Because my mum was a muser, I, I started doing uh, gigs with her when I was about 12. When I was 12, I did the Crystal Palace Football Club dinner dance. And I remember my mum gave me a tenner. Uh, I got a tankard, which I still got at home. And there were some quite famous footballers there. I mean, I think George Best was there and uh, wow. Peter Osgood. So, yeah, we actually used to live next door to Ron Chopper Harris. My parents still live there. Um, who, who was the famous uh, Chelsea uh, <laughs> Chopper Harris? Uh, he's, you know, he was the the Vinnie Jones of his day. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, he got his name for a very good reason. But he, they were always next door. There were there were football parties, and uh, George Best was there and stuff like that. So I grew up around, sort of around football um, because uh, uh, Alan and Ron, who had the house, um, Alan's son Johnny, uh, we sort of grew up together, and he was a football mad. And uh, yeah, so it was from from. Uh, that point of view, it was it was always sort of nice to do um, do gigs with my mum because uh, it, it was a way of earning money. Although she used to keep five pound back to pay for my music lessons, and the other five pound I had, I had to used to have to split with my sister, who was at home asleep. But she said, from a, she was teaching me the value of money and family. So yeah, yeah. so wait wait to see what home I eventually put her in. <laughs> I'm only joking, mum, if you're listening. Um, but yeah, so from 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 that. I started doing gigs, um, and then I went in, when I was 14, I left my mum's band to work with a guy called Greg Francis, who sadly died last year, but he was a very big arranger, and I'd done some work for his um, blow band, rehearsal band, and he used to do a lot of the Mecca dance band arrangements, and we were, we were you know, it was, a, it was a rehearsal band, you know, some good players in it, but a big band, and at the end of it, he would often play, if he, would, he used to write music for like Miss World and stuff, so he would put the charts up and we would play through it, and it would give him an idea of what it sounded like and anything he had to change. And um, my dad used to take me along there, I think it was Thursday nights, and at the end of one rehearsal, he said to my dad, listen, I've got a, a job coming up, it's a residency in a club. It's what is now the Hideaway Club, but it used to be called the uh, Peacock Club. It was a right. very well-known cabaret club. It was, you know, where everyone went wearing tux- tuxedos and they would have dinner dancing and then a star cabaret. And he said, would uh, young Mike like to come along and play? And I said, well, yeah, obviously. And I was getting 25 quid a night. <laughs> uh, so I was earning 50 quid a week. That's when my mates were doing a paper round all week and Sunday papers for a fiver. So yeah. I was like, yeah. So I missed out on a, every Friday and Saturday night for about a year and just over a year. But um, it was quite good because uh, Greg used to drop me home after the gig quite late. And I'd, if there was a party locally, he dropped me off there and I'd turn up all suited and booted. All my mates would be a bit hammered and I'd turn up and all the girls were there. Oh, it's young Mike, you know, how are you doing? So I, I didn't miss out at all. I had a great time, actually. Cause, yeah. And when you turn up to a party when you're completely sober and your mates are hammered 
And you're sort of, <laughs> it's very funny because they're all daft and stupid. And all the girls going, oh, look, that, that Aussie's a nice guy. He's a he's very yeah. sensible guy. And he's minted. <laughs> <laughs> well, that always helps. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so, and from there, it was, it, was, it was quite weird because I actually wanted to be an actor. Because I'd done a lot of acting when I was a kid. I was at the, when I was at 12, I was at the, the National Theatre for about a year playing um, in a restoration company called The Double Dealer. You, you couldn't do every night, and obviously it's a, a, the, it's a rep company, the National Theatre, so they would do a show for a few nights and another show would go in. And I had to swap, uh, had to split it with another boy because there was licensing issues. You can only do a certain number of performances in a year, but it was great. I loved that. It was, it was really good fun. I used to get out of school as well for doing it, and um, I went on and did uh, quite a bit in the, in the West End and uh, a couple of films, so I actually thought I was going to become an actor. I had a top agent and I, had a, I didn't have to do the, in those days, to get an equity card, you had to do 40 weeks on a provisional card. That's why a lot of uh, the actors in the old days would do, uh, they would go and do buttons or pontins or go and do yeah. you know, rep theatre up, up and down the country in order to get their professional uh, equity card. But because I'd done so much work, as soon as I was 16, they sent me a, a what's called a, a provisional card, but it was exempt. So it meant that I didn't have to, because I'd had all this contract work from the National. So it just meant as soon as I was 18, I became a, a full member, which was brilliant. And so I, I remember going to audition. I only really wanted to go to the Guildhall. I didn't go to the RAD because I thought it was stuffy or Lambda. I just wanted to go to the Guildhall. And... Um, I went along and I got I got a place and I was so excited I was still pretty I'm going to be a, a, I'm going to be the next uh, Gilgood or Olivier but um, I actually wanted to be a comedy actor rather than a straight actor um, and I was really looking forward to going to, to to the college in September then I got a phone call from Jean Cadell who was the head of the college to say um, that that she'd been speaking to uh, and at the time I went for the audition I was actually uh, um, um, in a show in the West End at the um, uh, theatre called it was with Tom Baker um, and I was playing Treasure Island at Mermaid Theatre that's right and I was playing long uh, he was playing Long John Silver and I was playing um, at Hawkins uh, Jim, Jim Hawkins and so it was great so I went for the audition I was like oh yes I'm doing this I've got a top London agent and I've already got my equity card and blah de, blah de, blah I thought you know and when they offered me a place I was really happy but then after about two three weeks I got a phone call from Jean Cadell and she said some of the uh, tutors have been talking and they think it would be detrimental to you to come to college because we'd expect you to be here for three years and you, you've, you've already made a mark in the acting business, which is, you, as you and I both know, you know in, in that profession, it's, it's, it's getting your face to the front and then yeah. you know, you've done one thing, one job tends to lead to another. So she said, so we're going to put your, your place on hold and we think, um, and I was devastated because I didn't know what to do and I said, well... I've never trained, I've never had an acting you know, job in my, my life. I did a bit of tap dancing when my mum used to play for the local dance school, but I haven't done, you know, I haven't trained at all. And uh, mm. she said, well, you're obviously doing something right. So I was, um, I was really, really sort of knocked back. And I knew I wanted to do something in the arts. I didn't particularly want to be a musician because my mum was a musician, but, and I, I, I equated that with doing you know, pubs and clubs and, and weddings and things like that, although I loved it and the, the money was good when I was young. I didn't really see that as a career. It looked to be, my mum had a, a full-time job as a, as she used to work in accounts and things, but she used to do music as, sometimes when she was younger, she did it uh, more full-time, but when she, when she got older, she was, it was like a sideline job, and she yeah. put, put my sister and I through good educations by doing that. So I was a bit knocked back, but I was having orchestral percussion lessons with a lady called Sue Bixley, 
who was, uh, who and still is, a very good friend. And um, I was having a tube percussion, and, and not drum kit, I taught myself drum kit, but um, she said, why don't you try for one of the music colleges? And the, the auditions were still going ahead, so I, I would shed it all the pieces. And I got a place at the Royal Academy of Music, uh, which was amazing. I, I didn't think I'd get it. I think it was a... I think about 77 people applied and they gave out three or four places. So yeah. I was lucky to get that. And I, that's basically how my music career started. So Amazing. I did three years there. And um, yeah, there's some quite good stories of how, I, you know, I think probably everybody has weird stories of how they actually eventually go into the profession. But uh, mine's pretty weird. Um, I, uh, I was at school and there was a program called Play Away. And it was a big music program and it was on BBC One. And there was a, a house band, and it was led by a guy called Jonathan Cohen. And there was, uh, they were due to come to our school. I was at uh, Glen Grammar School. And they were due to come to our school and do a, a, a sort of workshop in the afternoon, sort of play to the students and talk about the instruments and things. And uh, I was in Latin, and Mr Diamond, my music teacher, came in. He said, uh, Ozzy, he said, um, could you possibly uh, set the school drum kit up? on the stage I went yeah certainly you know anything to get out of Latin <laughs> so um, I went and set the uh, school kit up he said yeah, they've got a problem with their drummer and we had a phone call that the, uh, the drummer guy called Rob Curling had, had, uh, had, he'd, car, he'd, he'd had a car crash or something and he, he wouldn't be able to get in so the band turned up and of course I've been used to gigging and, and, and busking and stuff and um, Jonathan said uh, well we're going to do this number do you, do you know that I said yes you know and I think they thought I was going to be some sort of 14 year old little rocker you know just yeah. ruining the whole gig <laughs> but no I just listened to the, the, the bass player I think it was a guy called Spike Heatley I think still around I think sure it was for him and there was some I think Dave Roach was on so some very very good you know the top players were on it mm. and of course I was a school hero and um, we went into the headmaster's office afterwards and, and Jonathan kind of said that was fantastic all the guys were going that's brilliant and I think the headmaster was giving out the sherry and um, I'm, I'm standing there, and I picked up a glass and said, oh, could I have some Ned Marston? <laughs> went, certainly not. And, I, and Jonathan Cohen said, well, he's definitely going to be a muser. <laughs> <laughs> and bizarrely, Jonathan Cohen, uh, he was uh, very um, um, instrumental in me becoming a musician because he said, listen, you're, you're, uh, you, know, you should think about doing music as a career. He said, you obviously got great ears. And he said, you were really, 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 you know, listening and, you know, you were following. And it was, it was really, really musical. And he said, most drummers just bash and keep time. And there was a few jokes about drummers and all that. And I'd heard them all before. And I was going to do my normal retort, but I was in front of the headmaster, so I couldn't. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so we, we, uh, he said, have you considered a career in music? And I was going, well, at that time, I wanted to be an actor or a geography teacher. Because <laughs> I love geography, and I love my geography teacher. But <laughs> I hadn't really considered doing music as a career. And he said, well, you should do that. He said, I trained at the Royal Academy of Music. <laughs> thought nothing of it he took my name and, uh, and phone number he said if anything you know he used to run a youth choir and he said if I get stuck I'll give you a call I didn't get a call but then um I went to, to the, 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 I was in my third year at the academy and uh, about to go out in the big wide world I did have a gig actually I was I was doing a uh, <laughs> as soon as I left college I was did two months on a holiday camp with uh, little and large and, and various other artists but you know, it was a gig, a gig's a gig, and uh, yeah. my, I was, at least I was working, my other mates weren't, so, and I was in the bar, very, very drunk one night, um, it was Ben Skin's beer, 40 beer pint, I remember, which was fantastic, and um, so, uh, <laughs> I was at the bar, and uh, Jonathan Cohen came in, he came to see his old uh, professor, and he's standing at the bar, and he's a very, very distinguished guy, and 
I'm sort of looking at him, and he's looking at me and going, and he went, I know you. I said, oh, yeah, so, so, yeah, you came to our school. Right? <laughs> and he's laughing, and he said, he said to me, he said, so you took my advice and came to the Royal Academy of Music, and I hadn't even thought, I mean, he'd said that, but I'd forgotten mm. it, and I went, of course, as you do. Yes, I did. <laughs> and he was, I'm a, you, you can imagine if, if some young, young Irk came up to you and you gave him some advice and then sort of seven years later he's, he's done it. You know, you're thinking, wow. You know? yeah. um, and he said, he told the story to his press, this guy come and save the day. He was, he was brilliant. And, and uh, Jonathan said, are you still, the, uh, you're still at the same address? I said, well, my, my, yes, my parents' address, yeah. He said, well, I've still got that uh, phone number in my Rolodex. Now, that's going back. You remember the Rolodexes? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, when do you finish? I said, well, finishing until, you know, June, July time. He said, well, he said, I'll give you a call. He said, um, perhaps, um, you, you know, if you want to come do some, now you're professional, I'll see if I can put some work your way. I thought, that's Amazing. brilliant. So I was, uh, one day I was down at the holiday camp and got a phone call from my mum. And she said, well, Jonathan Cohen's called. Will you give him a call? So I gave him a call. And he said, would you like to come up and um, do some play schools? Now, it was a very famous program. I don't know if you remember it. Yeah. With some yeah. of our younger viewers won't, but it was a very long-running program. And so I used to go in and, and do play school, which was fantastic. And, and um, through and uh, what an experience. Uh, what, was, what was bizarre for me, because they always had a, a set of, like, Big, big Ted, Little Ted, uh, Jemima, and all these sort of mm-hmm. characters. But they had loads of them, hundreds of them. They had rehearsal ones and the ones they used for, you know, for, for when the filming which completely destroyed my image because I grew up with play school and suddenly when you've got a 17 big Ted and you're like, what's going on? Um, but what was lovely, as from, from that, I did some work with Jonathan with a, a guy called David Kernan who was a producer and we did a, um, we did a wonderful... Uh, the one, there was a wonderful lady, she was called Elizabeth Welsh and she was one of the first black lady singers so she sang with all the bands in London. I think she was the first lady to record Love for Sale and it was banned by the BBC because of the, the lyrics mm. and um, but she was an amazing and she was a very old lady and they decided they were going to do a, 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 a few concerts at the Almeida Theatre in Islington and uh, and I was in the in, in the in the trio with, with Jonathan and a guy called Dave Rose who was a fantastic bass player I think he, he there's a bass player on Phantom May still well be he, that was his gig and, uh, yes, yeah, so we did this, and David Kernan, who was one of the producers, he was doing a show, uh, just about a show in the West End called Blues in the Night, and he said to me after one of the shows, he said, listen, he said, would you, so I'm putting a show together, would you like to come and do, uh, play the drums for it? And I was, fantastic. And that show ran for a, a year and a half, and it was in, in the West End. So I sort of came out of music college and went, and sort of went straight into the West End, and my mates were going, how did you manage that? And yeah. Just luck. I mean, you know, luck has been... I think you sort of make your own luck in this business, but, I mean, I've got some very, very lucky um, breaks at the beginning. Yeah. So at, at the Royal Academy, did, were you studying orchestral percussion? Orchestral, purely orchestral percussion. Yeah, and then coming out and, into a drum chair in the West End. Yeah, and what was weird, um, when I went to the audition, uh, there was a lovely uh, chap called Jimmy Blades, who I'd, my mum had taken me to see Jimmy when uh, he was a very, very well-known percussionist, and he used to do a lot of recitals. He was the guy who played um, in the old rank films uh, where there's a guy comes out and plays a huge gong. Uh, that wasn't Jimmy, because Jimmy was only about sort of five foot tall, very <laughs> dapper little short man. But uh, that was Bombardier Billy Wells, who was the army uh, you know, boxing champion. He was built, you know, and he came out and the, the rank film and they filmed it and he smashed his huge gong and it was their, sort of their, their title thing for all their films. And Jimmy recorded 
the uh, recorded that uh, gong. In fact, I've actually played on that. That uh, um, it's a tam tam, actually not a gong. Yeah. Um, do you know the difference between a gong and a tam tam? I should do because I actually played percussion when I was in high school. Uh, well, I was. I was. I tell this to all my students, but the uh, a, a gong can be tuned and has a nipple. Right. Uh, you know, in the middle of the middle. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. called a nipple, nothing rude, but you get lots of good fours when you tell that to students. And the tam-tam <laughs> is sort of, it's, it's more or less flat. It's got a slight bevel on it, yeah. but that's the difference. I just always remember having to warm up the tam-tam before you hit it. You, you do, to, like, absolutely. It yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a, actually, it's quite a hard instrument to play properly because if you overhit it, there's <laughs> nothing you can do. It just goes, yeah. <laughs> and deafens everything. And if you underhit it, it's like, because oh, normally only one gong hit. And if you don't hit it right, you go, oh, I lugged it all the way here and <laughs> messed it up. <laughs> um, but, but Jimmy was fantastic. And when I, I went to see him, my mum took me to see him with a school friend in Guildford. He was doing a recital. I was about nine. And I came up on stage and, and played a, 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 a Tam Tam Pizzali. And um, I, I thought that was it. That's my mum did it deliberately because that's when she bought me a drum kit and she got a very cheap drummer for many years. So, um, <laughs> but then when I, when I went to the academy, Jimmy was actually on the board, so it was fantastic. And he came up to me just before the audition and uh, he said, oh, young Michael, how are you? I said, oh, thanks, Jimmy. Because I, I actually did some work with Jimmy on a, a festival, a local festival, music festival, and he was there and I helped him move his gear around and then I played in the evening, I played a... Uh, Noah's Flood, which he played, and he had the original Benjamin Britten parts, which Benjamin uh, Ben Britten had written for him. Mm-hmm. And I've, over some of the bits, he say, "Jimmy, do what you like here." <laughs> Things like that. It's like what? <laughs> he was an amazing, very, and I use his teaching techniques all the time. You'd be in a huge percussion room at the. He used to come in and do the academy. By the way, he was the. He used to come and do master classes once or twice a term, mm-hmm. and I loved those. You'd have an hour with him, and it was just wonderful. And most of it was storytelling, but he had some fantastic stories. And um, he'd worked with everybody, he'd been all the orchestras, and he just had a way of, like, if you were in a huge percussion room and he'd like showing you, I don't know, for example, how to do a tambourine roll, you know, where you'd lick your finger and you'd go around the edge. And he'd sort of, he'd come up, he said, now what you want to do, you get it, you lick your finger, and he said, just hold it all 45 degrees. He said, just do that. And he'd do it, he'd say, yeah, that's it, you've got it. And he would, and you'd be whispering, and he'd be whispering, but nobody around. And it was a way like he was passing down the, the secrets of percussion. Yeah. And it was so wonderful. I, I would pay him a lot of money just to, just to have another hour with Jimmy, just chatting and hearing stories I've heard a thousand times before. He was a wonderful, wonderful man, a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Um, uh, and if any percussionist, you know, worth their salt, you know, of my age probably, uh, remembers Jimmy. He was such, a, 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 such an icon of, of our business. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so, uh, so Jimmy came up to me just before this audition. He said, um, now, he said, young Michael, if Mr. Cole, it was Nick Cole, who was principal RPO, Royal Philharmonic, um, and he had a downer on kit players. He didn't like kit players. So uh, Mr. Cole came up and he said, now, young Michael, he said, if Mr. Cole asks you if you play the drum set, he said, um, I would I advise you to be economical with the truth. <laughs> okay, Jimmy. So I went in and did my audition and then I sat down in front of the panel and, uh, and Jimmy was there and actually uh, Sue was there and some other, you know, lots of other people on the panel sat down and Nick sort of interviewed me. He said, now, you, tell me a bit about yourself and stuff like this. And he said, now, uh, Michael, do you play the drum kit at all? And I went, well... Uh, Mr. Cole, I said, I, I have done, I have done a little bit, but um, I really want to come to the academy if I get in and concentrate on orchestral percussion. So I, I think you should be a master of one trade and not a jack of all. 
And he went, very good. And he looked down and made some notes. And I looked at Jimmy, and Jimmy gave this big wink like this. <laughs> but, yeah. So I got into the academy, and I think it was about after the first, because I had a car, a little Hillman Imp, he said, we put all my drums in there, you know, to go to gigs. And none of the guys had drum kits at the academy. It wasn't the academy. Uh, the academy wasn't even a drum kit. So um, I used to bring uh, one of the uh, other guys said, "Look, we've got a, um, a jazz uh, jazz night, freshers' jazz night. Will you come along and do the kit?" So we need a drive. So yeah, I'd love to. So I'd, I brought my kit up and set it up. It was a great band. Um, uh, some really really good players. Some of the guys came from Guildhall as well. So it was kicking. It was an absolute stonking night. And I'm playing away. I think we were doing Green Dolphin Street. Da, 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 da. And who do I see coming along the corridor? He's obviously <laughs> been around the corner. Nick did, uh, you know, well, the Academy Bar was very, very cheap. So a lot of the professors used to come and, you know, in between, uh, if they get down between shows or going to do for they, they come and stock up at the, uh, at the Academy Bar. <laughs> you know. Anyway, I saw, uh, uh, I saw Mr. Cole coming down the corridor. I thought, oh, no. But he had, uh, he had his penguin suit on. So um, I knew he was working around, you know, must have been working locally. So I was thinking, oh no, he's obviously not coming to sit in. He's probably just come for a... And so I thought, oh, he's going to see me. So I said to the guys, I said, guys, whatever happens, keep playing. I'm not supposed to be able to play the drums. So I'm going to like doing press rolls and little rolls. And you know what they're like, musicians, that they, they, they're playing away. They suddenly went, fours. And I go, and of course they're all laughing. I'm trying to. So, luckily, we get to the end of the number. I'm like, break, break, we're in a break. I went and hid behind a column so I didn't catch eye contact with Nick. And luckily, I think he had a couple and just scooted off, so we started again. And in my next lesson, he said, Oh, I said, Ozzy, I saw you in the bar the other day playing the drum kit. I said, Yeah, I said, there was supposed to be someone turn up from Guildhall but they didn't turn up, so I just filled in. He said, yes. He said, you did look like a fish out of water. He said, but very nice press rolls. <laughs> yeah, I got away with it again. I did get massively found out because I did a TV show called The All-Electric Amusement Arcade before I went to the Academy, and I, when I was uh, an actor, but I was also playing the part of a drummer. Dale, the drummer, who had to sell his drum kit because he got done for GBH. So I came in on the, the second episode, and that's it. They had a drum kit, so I, I went up and did this massive drum solo, and it was filmed from above and aside. All the kids in the amusement arcade were all clapping, and it was, it was great. And, they, they, you know, there's the sides going off to, like, the guitar player and the singer saying, he's really good, should we ask him to join our band? And that was it. And it was a TV series. It ran for, you know, a whole series. It was very, very big, yeah. actually. We, we released a single out of it I think it got to number 44 in the charts you know so it was great though it was a good experience but of course I got I mean I got well paid for it and then over the summer holiday after I've been at the academy for a year uh, it was suddenly shown over a summer and uh, Nick had, uh, had had some had children and they said oh look, dad there's a drummer and Nick had seen me doing this huge drum solo <laughs> so when I came in at the beginning of my second year the first lesson with Nick he went uh Ozzy he said um, do you have a brother who plays the drums? No. <laughs> I was going, oh no, what's going on? She said, um, does the name Michael Lee Osborne, which is my stage name, I couldn't call Michael Osborne because there was another actor called Michael Osborne, so it was Michael Lee Osborne, which is a family name. And he said, does the, does the name Michael Lee Osborne mean anything? I went, um, yes, that's my stage name. He said, ah. Oh. He said, um, he said, I was watching the television, I saw a, a programme called The All Electric Amusement. Okay, and I knew I was busted. I was busted. He said, so when he said you just played the drum kit a little bit, he said, um, he said, uh, 
He said, that was a lie, wasn't it? I said, well, I said, you know, it was, they can do a lot of camera work. <laughs> We're not going to get away with this. And he said, when you came to the academy, he said, he said I know you know Mr. Blades, but did Mr. Blades tell you that I didn't really like kit players? I went, yes, I did. And he said, at that time I came into the bar, he said, did you espy me before I espied you? Yes, Mr. Gold. He said, ah. Yes, Mr. Osborne. He said, mine's a large scotch. Said, yeah, OK, all right, that's fine. I got away with it. But, yeah, so... Um, <laughs> it's, that's um, brilliant. Yeah, I think the thing is, sometimes it, it, it never pays to... Uh, um, <laughs> whatever you say in this business will come back and bite you on the bum. If, you, yeah. if you've got... A, you, if whatever little stroke you pull, it's better to be very, very upfront and and, <laughs> and straight with people because yeah. if you try and pull the, pull the wool over their eyes, it will come back. I promise yeah, you. I 100%. found out I was a young player, so that's I don't do that anymore. So you went from studying at the Royal Academy, uh, coming out straight into like a, t- a telly job, then into the West End and, and playing all these yeah. jazz gigs. And obviously your training had been orchestral. Yeah. And you, you, it looks like your career sort of been that way ever since. You've done you've done like bits of everything. You've worked with, you know, touring artists. You've done loads of telly. You've done loads of theatre. Um, how how important is it? Do you think? especially as a percussionist or as a drummer, to be able to turn your hand to all these styles and all these different environments and different instruments? I think it's probably the one thing I say to all of my students. Um, I taught at um, Trinity College for, for many years in the junior college and uh, some stuff in the senior college. And um, when you've got these fantastic students, fan- fantastic percussionists, a lot of them, most, most of them were, were orchestral percussionists, but they're all some very good kit players. I used to teach both. And one of the, they obviously want to go into the business. Some of them are going to go into the senior college. Some of them are going to go straight out into the. To, to, and I've, I've been very lucky. A lot of my students have done very well. But what I always say to them, a couple of bits of advice is the most important thing is to be versatile. Don't get pigeonholed. Mm. Um, I think all musicians uh, have to earn their living from lots of different things. I mean, there are not many players who can just do playing. Um, there are some amazing players in this country, some amazing drummers, and, but you can probably count them on the fingers of one hand, those guys who just purely play. Mm-hmm. To, to, to really keep, keep a sustained job and a sustained career, you have to be able to, to I think, teach. Teaching is vital. I started teaching uh, basically to pay my bar bill <laughs> when I left the academy. Um, I started teaching at Epsom College, and I've been here for 35 years, and uh, I've managed to keep that job going even when I was doing touring. Um, and, I mean, I think one year I only came in six times, but I used to always used to put a good cover teacher, and they, I think they, they respected the fact that I was out working, although I was, you know, and, they, and they very nicely kept, kept my job open for me. And, you know, I love teaching here. Um, I, do, I do a lot of work here. I've got my own percussion studio here, and it's a, it's a lovely school. Uh, it's a good music department, and I, I really enjoy it. And there were times where I, I nearly gave it up because I was so busy, and I remember some old musicians saying, don't do that. Teaching is a really valuable part of your degree. You, lo- you know a lot about your own playing because you have to yeah. analyse everything. And for me, it really did help as well because... Because I had to be super analytical when I was with, of my own with my own problems. When I'm looking at a part or a score or something, I have to sort of make sure that you know because I do have that that sort of slight problem with with reading music. So um, I think it made me a better teacher because I have to you know super analyze what I'm doing uh, with mm-hmm. my students and also your own play. So I think teaching is a vital part of it. Um, I think also uh, I, composing is is important. I've, I've done a lot of composition of, of mostly exam music. I did all the the last Trinity uh, drum kit exams. I've just finished doing that with two other drummers, Chris Burgess and Clark Tracy. Um, 
and that was a great project. I've also done a lot of, uh, of working with the dance companies. That's where you and I met each other, working for Lane Theatre Arts. And yeah. so I've always had a close alignment with, with dancing, also being a, a tap dancer myself when I was a kid. Um, I did, um, you, know, you just have that affinity, I think, though, music and, and dance that go very, very hand together. Um, both my ex-wives were both dancers. <laughs> but um, the, I think that uh, it's, it's a very important part of you know, being creative in the same way that you will be creative as a musician if you're creative in, in writing, being able to put stuff down. I really, really enjoy doing that. I wish I had more time to do more of that. Yeah. Um, but there's some, you have to, I think, if you want to be, make your living purely as a composer, you have to spend a lot of time doing that. And, you know, it, it, I, I have too many overheads that I have to keep working. So I think you, that, that's a nice, uh, you know, it's a nice area, but I can't do it all the time. You know, yeah. I've just finished doing a, a, a big library project of just percussion music when it was so creative with a good friend of mine, Steve Gilchrist, who bizarrely was the, is the son of my first percussion teacher, Sue Bixley. Oh, and wow. I taught him drums when he was a little lad. <laughs> so it, it's great. We're, we're very, very good mates. But, but, but that area, composing and, and, and doing that is, is great. And I think, obviously, is playing. If you're playing, I mean, I, I've played with the orchestras. I've played West End shows. I've played with artists, done jazz gigs. A bit of everything, really. Not much um, hard rock. I'm not really a heavy rock player. I haven't got the, mm-hmm. haven't got the hairstyle for that. But... Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that that's the reason why I love music so much because it, it, you don't, I don't get bored. I'm never bored. I get up every morning. I might have a 10-hour teaching day and then do, do a you know, show up in town or a late-night gig. I, I'm really happy to be working. And, and, and for me, when I was at my heaviest and I was just working days and days and days and nights, and I, was, I was loving it. I don't yeah. need much sleep. I'm like my mum. I need about four or five hours sleep a night. And mm. I'm quite happy on that. And the, the opposite is if I'm not working, I get too much sleep. I'm terrible. I just, I'm like... You know, I've, I feel like I've got to do something. I mean, this this lockdown has been not good, but yeah. you know, I still managed to. Make, you know, luckily I've got to you know to do a lot of remote teaching. Remote drumming, by the way, is horrific. <laughs> you know, it's horrific. It's just it's. I mean, bless my lovely students. I try and make the lessons you know uh, fun, and you know, I also give them a few Aussie stories because it's much easier to talk rather than play drums. Because <laughs> every time you hit a cymbal, everything freezes, and it goes speeds up, and, oh, and God, it's the yeah. drum. Some of the drum kits sound like a, a one-legged van, man in a suit of armour falling backwards down a flight of concrete steps whilst juggling cutlery, <laughs> and uh, so it's uh, it's not good. And uh, you know, the end of a the, normally I can do a sort of nine, ten-hour teaching day and feel fresh as a daisy, but five or six hours of remote teaching, and I. I'm, I'm straight down a bottle of wood, uh, Jameson's when I get home. <laughs> purely medicinal, purely medicinal. But. So, yes, yeah, so I think what you're saying, I think as, a, as the, the most important thing, particularly for young players, is don't get pigeonholed. And do everything. Do, try, and, try and bit of all, all types of music. Because sometimes yeah. you, you'll come across an, an area of music where I was very lucky when I was young, a, younger, a younger musician. I, I, I did a collaboration album with a guy called Ronnie Barak, who's a Darbuka player. He came and found me he came to a gig I was doing and he came up to me and he had this this sort of instrument under his arm in, in a case I didn't know what I said he goes oh you, you are you are you are Aussie the great Aussie and I'm going what <laughs> he said I've been seek, seeking you out I am from Lebanon I'm thinking what's going on here and he was working in a, a restaurant at Marirish up in up in London with his brother um, Ellie and they were great and they would play all this Ellie had like a keyboard with like quarter tones on and they would play that belly dance and stuff and they were earning a fortune because you know all these very rich Arabs would come in and they, they'd always sort of tip the belly dance and they'd put all the money into his darbuka his, his drum that he used to play 
Anyway, uh, we, we were playing, and he said, that I, I, and he said, I need you to teach me the drums and percussion. I went, okay, you know. He, I said, what do you play? He said, I play the dabuka, you know, and uh, he got this, like, you know, this tabla drummer. I said, well, we're doing, uh, at the beginning of the second half, we're going to do Night in Tunisia. Do you fancy coming and playing? And he said, so he came up there, I had no idea, he might be completely useless. He wasn't, he was absolutely unbelievably unbelievable. <laughs> and he did this solo and it was just like, I've never seen anything like it in my life. And we, we were trading fours and we just hit it off straight away. Yeah. And we became really, really good friends. And he was, he was one of my ushers when I got married. And, and oh, yeah, we are very close friends. And he, he goes around the world, he works with like Grusin, you know, the Grusin brothers and stuff. He's, he's an amazing, he's back in Dabuka uh, 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 and composer. He, He's back in uh, Lebanon now and doing very, very well for himself. But that's the thing. It's suddenly an area of music I knew nothing about. And I said to him, listen, I'll teach you all I know about drumming and, and percussion. And you teach me how to play the Dabuka. Yeah. So I taught him, and he was grade eight within about you know, six months on both of them. And I was still on grade minus one on the Dabuka. <laughs> it's just the wrong <laughs> I can do the basic maxim and that's it. Forget it. Yeah. Thinking now about young people coming into this as a career compared to when, when you came into it, do yeah. you think that they see, I mean, obviously you had all these amazing opportunities and there's a lot of live music in TV and, and all these things. Yeah. There's less yeah, of that these it. days. Do you think people now maybe see, you know, this guy is a drummer, but he plays in the West End and he works there and he does eight shows a week and that's his job. So that's what I need yeah. to train to do. And they see that rather than, you know, the, the wider picture of, of everything else that potentially is available. I think, Mark, that, that you've hit the nail on the head. I think when I, I was very lucky in, uh, when I was you know, starting the business, I was probably caught the tail end of when music was very, you know, there was a lot of it about, a lot of TV shows. I was very lucky to play on a lot of the house band um, TV shows and, and some of them, you know, uh, lots of artists, often you have a live band on telly or you go or you do a tour and you do a, a date on a, on a live show. Um, that's that work is not there now and yeah. bizarrely a lot of the young players um that i speak to i do a lot of training courses through the year and um i know a lot of the the youngsters are at the colleges at the moment a lot of them i've taught a lot of them are you know i've taught them on courses or i've taught them myself and their be all and end all is doing the only job really at the moment that they see as a regular job is working in the west end yeah um which i think is an awful shame i understand it but that's all they want to do is to do the west end which was the problem is that with that is that there used to be a very healthy um depping scene in town when i started you know there were there were guys called super depths and they do about five or six shows and you phone mm -hmm. them up and they, you know, and they were they were you know great players and they would know five or six shows and they, they would keep regular just as a debt because they'd be doing the same you know and because there was so much other work for those top players to go out and do. But nowadays, as the business is getting much smaller, the only re and what happens as well, fixers get far more packed, too much power, and they say to these young players, or they get right, you won't be depping out, you can't do that depping, you know. And they tell them if, you know, they, it, it's become um, quite tyrannical, quite toxic, I think. You know, I mean, I've, I've been out of town for, for a while, occasionally go and do the odd depths, but I'd, I've sort of chosen, um, I had to take a, a career move about uh, 12, 13 years ago, um, uh, through, I have to go. Uh, I visit my children who live in Plymouth every other weekend. So that meant that I couldn't do the tours and I couldn't do the shows in the West End uh, because you can't really take take a show on. I did it for a while and then depth out every Friday and Saturday night. It's mm. it's not really it's not really it's not fair on the other players because you're yeah. you're not going to work. You're just going to see your family. But I've done that for the last twelve, thirteen years quite gladly, driving up in the A three hundred three, seeing my kids. But um, it's it's fine. It's a lovely part of the world for them to grow up in. But 
Um, for me, it meant that I had to, to diversify and, and not, do, not do, you know, I couldn't take shows on a tour. So obviously more teaching, more writing, more one-off gigging. And actually, I've been the busiest I've been in the last, you know, 10 years than I have before that. And what's more, I enjoy it more because it's more varied. The problem with, with, with shows in town, I mean, who, who of us train to playing Marler or Stockhausen or whatever at Music College so you can cite me in anything and then you're playing the same, you know, no disrespect, the same Lloyd Webber show eight times a week. Uh, I never really got bored. I think the longest I did on a show, so it was about a year and a half, I loved every moment on it. But towards the end when I was doing, I was, after just a few weeks, I was finding I was getting bored. There's still something lovely about being in an orchestra and you hear the audience coming in and, and you know, that buzz before you play the overture. I love that. That, that never goes away. But I think to do it as a job, and also don't forget you're only ever two weeks away from unemployment. You know, the yeah. notice goes up, bye-bye. You know, you, and the trouble is if you get reputation for being just a show player, suddenly you can be working for a year, a year two years, three years on the show, and suddenly it stops. And you yeah. can be out of work for six, six, six seven, eight months, you know, whatever. It's... Um, it's very, it's very hard. It's very hard to to to, to advise, uh, you know, how your career should go because earning regular money is uh, in the in the business. That's the only or one of the orchestras, I suppose. But those those jobs are few and far between now. They use mostly pickup guys. But um, yeah, the West End is the only really employer of of, of you know, you'd, and also you get a regular weekly wage, which you never get as a, as a as a freelancer. You're always invoicing and waiting for money at any yeah. any time. I mean, I've, I've you know, you, you look at your banking account, go, oh god, and you go, well, actually, I'm owed, you know, this this much money, and yeah. that that continual. Uh, I understand probably, but like businesses have problems with like cash flow. I think you call it. You know, you've done the work. You know, you're still waiting for it to be paid, but you've still got to pay your bills. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to go into music business to make money, you're an idiot. You know, go and go and become <laughs> a go and become and work in the city. You're going to do anything else. Yeah. But but go and be a road sweeper. At least you get a regular, you know, uh, weekly wage. Um, so it, it's a really hard profession. However, it's the best profession, and I absolutely love it. I mean, I had opportunities to do other things, actually, and work in the city when I was young, and I chose not to do that. Mm-hmm. All my mates who have done it are all multi-millionaires now, but I really, really don't care, because I think if money is your goal, then uh, that's fine. Uh, but if, if, if money is your goal and you're going to the music business, then you are an idiot. Yeah. You know, you go into the music business because it's a lifestyle, and it's, the, the, and it's a fantastic lifestyle. You can earn money out of it, of course, you can earn good money out of it, but... Um, you have to work hard and be lucky. You have to be in the right place at the right time and you also have to have the right skill set. And yeah. that doesn't mean, by the way, I should say to my students, who think you, you, know, you, you play a, you know, you go and see someone like Ralph Sammons or you know, uh, Ian Thomas play, oh, I'll never be as good as him. That's fine because most gigs, you don't need to be a Ralph Sammons or an Ian Thomas. Those guys mm-hmm. are just phenomenal. They've been, we've got some amazing players in this country. Um, and uh, you know, Neil Wilkinson, these guys, they're, they're, they're amazing players. Um, and the reason they are, those are the guys who are on one hand who can uh, you know, earn a living from playing. Well, used to, and they're all a bit in trouble now like we all are, but... Um, it's the thing is all my all my students who say oh I want to be as good no you can aspire to be as good as they are but you, what you have to understand that this this business you know you can earn a very good living by just doing the job that is required they don't always need when you go on a session um, I say to a lot of my students you know if you have on a recording session you know, nine times out of ten what you're playing you have to go on a session play it right make a nice drum sound but what you're actually playing is not all the stuff I mean I would say that grade six there's not much stuff that you go on a session that's harder than grade six. Mm. And my students go, really? I said, yeah. And, you know, and often, you know, at the end of a session, sometimes you can just take the music or something and say, can I you know, take this? And, and you, you show it to the students, they go, what? I said, well, that's it. I said, but you have to play it bang on in time. You have to make a nice drum sound and you have to be amenable. You know, it's often yeah. 
some musicians are own worst friend because they they they're, they're own worst enemy because what they do is they they will go on a gig and they will think that business owes them a profession it doesn't so you have to get on with people you have to be gregarious I know a lot of times I was booked on tours not because I was the best player but I was be the best guy to have on tour because I'd be yeah. <laughs> first in the bar <laughs> last out the cab first in the bar never made any money but you know that's the, the whole thing about it is that I, I, I look back on some of those tours and I've had some of the best times uh, I, I, I regret absolutely nothing about going to this profession I've got some amazing friends I've done you know, I'm very lucky I've done some amazing gigs I know but it's not really about that it's about and, and, and teaching now and giving that you know you can never give someone that experience but you can give them the benefit of that experience and you yeah. can and they can see, I think, the, the joy that you feel. And, I mean, I do a, as I say, do a 10-hour teaching day. I'm as fresh at the, the end as I am at the beginning. Not, not on remote by a million years, but normal one-on-one because I, I love that. And I think they see, I, I learned that from Jimmy Blades, the love of the instrument, the love of, of the business is something that, that they, they, they can take something from. Yeah. That, um, that idea about, you know, the depth and culture thing and um, yeah. also with teaching as well, like... Being able to to have a regular teaching job, which allows you to go off and and work and do other things and freelance yeah, and come yeah, and yeah. come back to it, it's sort of and same with with Deppin on a show. If you're doing a show eight times a week, of course it makes it sort of benefits all parties more to be able to go away and do something else and come back yeah. refreshed, put someone yeah. else in, freshen it up a little bit. You know, it, yeah, absolutely. It seems like a no brainer to allow musicians that versatility and um, but it's it's. It's difficult to do these days, isn't it? Even even with teaching jobs, like there, there are very few teaching jobs yeah, which would allow you to hang on to it, but go off and do a, a tour for a few months, or or even like days off to, to do yeah. other things. I, I'm I'm very lucky in the in the, the, the teaching the, the posts I've had. I've been in for many many years. I also teach at Rygate Grammar School. I've been there for eighteen nineteen years. I think that they know, they see that the results you get with the students, and they they can see that the benefit of you. Um, I, I, I think probably if you're a good head of music, you will understand that if you, a musician is a creative person, and I think to be a good teacher, you have to be creative. Mm-hmm. If I didn't, at the moment, obviously I'm doing next to no playing, and I would thought, I, I thought that that would actually make my teaching, you know, less. I thought I wouldn't be as good a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, remote teaching has made me have to think about things in a different way. I think it's actually improved my teaching because I've had to be far more... Uh, look at things from a different perspective, perhaps. Um, and I thought not having that outlet of being creative in, in my own playing, I think because I've had a quite a long and varied career, uh, I feel now like I've sort of been there, done that. It's not really, uh, I don't think Elton's going to be phoning me up to do his next world tour. But, um, <laughs> and you never know, you know, things happen. But, um, and he's the only person on my bucket list, when I, which I wrote when I was 13. He's the really? only person. Oh, oh, I didn't even bother putting Stevie Wonder on it because I thought <laughs> that's stupid. But oh, everybody else on the bucket list I've done. The only, and ev- everything I've done, I've written wrote on my bu- bucket list I've done, apart from being a millionaire. Uh, <sighs> and uh, I possibly could have been that once. But, you know, being married twice, that, that's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless them. Um, bless, bless my lovely two ex-wives. They're lovely ladies. And for putting up for me for seven years each, they deserve a medal. Um, but, um, yeah, and, uh, the Elton John was the only person that, that I haven't done. I, I did do a session with um, uh, his uh, um, uh, percussionist, Ray Cooper, now that was just that was something else. I mean, Ray Cooper was just amazing. He just came in. He was going to play tambourine on this session. And they just wanted him playing tambourine. He came in with this 
this suitcase. I, I said, you know, I'd never met before, but, you know, he was amazed. I said, oh, Ray Kibbs, yeah, hello, mate, yeah. And I said, you're going on a holiday? He went, nah, he said, no. And he bit bang, it was full of tambourines. And he said, well, I played a track, and I played the track. And he went, and he, he was literally throwing these tambourines in the air behind his chair. And he went, this is the one. All right, okay, play the track. <laughs> did it, he's done. Right, let's go to the pub. That's <laughs> amazing. So we did the session in about 10 minutes, and we spent the rest of the three hours in the pub with him telling stories. It was fascinating. But that was, um, yeah, that was quite something. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, that's the closest I've been. <laughs> Seven degrees of separation. I've, I've done a gig with Elton's percussionist. I'm quite happy. I, I'm going I'm to actually, I'm going to go home, get my bucket list, I'm going to tick it off, because that's the closest I think yeah. I'm going to get. <laughs> Unless we're in an old folks' home, and you know, and Elton comes in on his Zimmer, and I'm there in my, you know... Uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Talking about gear and instruments and stuff, I, so I, I played a bit of percussion when I was in secondary school, because I could play the piano, and they needed someone who could play a bit of tuned percussion in the school orchestra yeah and i could already read it so did the tune stuff um but i was put off by the whole thing with just lugging all that gear around and you know <laughs> does oh, that drive you big, mental yeah honestly you big girl's blouse yeah, honestly it, it's, it, <laughs> do you know i'll be honest with you that lugging stuff around that I, I always think that's what you get paid for i remember yeah. there's a lovely pianist called harry harry the piano he was he plus friday night's music night just probably the world's best piano player he plays anything any style that's his that's his kit he could play uh, he could play the uh, magic roundabout theme in the style of rap man enough and he just does it he's just look him up but harry the piano uh, yeah. he's just harry harris He's on YouTube. He's just a very, very close, very close dear friend of mine. But he, he, I always made him laugh when we were doing gigs. And I said, um, I'd never charge people. I always play for free. I said, then if I cock it up, they can't, you know, I don't feel bad about it. I said, I charge people money uh, for setting the, driving there, setting the gear up. Yeah. And when all the other guys, you know, finish a gig and, and they're all in the car and down the A1 and they're, in, you know, five trumpet players all driving down. And I'm still, by the time they're gone, I'm still taking the, the vibraphone down or the big temps down and lugging them in. I still think, I'm earning. Right, now I'm earning, right? And I'm <laughs> earning all the way down the A1 until I put the gear in the lock up and lock up. So, right, now I'm finished. Now I'm finished. Yeah. And that's what, it's the way you look at it. We're simple people drummers, but that's the way I look at it. Basically, I'm a glorified a removal man. Um, <laughs> but I, I do notice it in lockdown because I'm not doing that sort of putting drums in the back car and setting them up, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, it's quite, you know, playing drums is quite cardiovascular, you know, and I, I stay the same way. After lockdown, I'll put about a stone and a half on. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, and that's pure. It's not because I'm eating anymore. It's just because I'm not doing that, so, you know, lump, lumping. What we call it's porterage, Mark. Yes. And we do charge for that. Sorry, we're charged <laughs> by the square foot nowadays. But, yeah, I mean, that is, and people always look at you, but it goes with the territory. And I remember doing a, a gig with a, a lovely friend of mine, Mark Rogers, who's a, he was ex-sound guy at uh, Abbey Road but it's also a great percussionist and we did a we did a gig a charity gig outside all you know at, at the beginning of lockdown for charity and stuff and we did a huge thing and and, and I, I was doing kit and he was doing percussion and um he came out from the lockup and we, we put all the stuff in his van and my van and we drove there and we were lumping this stuff across the field and you know I had a timp on my head you know walking along this, but to try and not get you know the mic. and he's going us he said I'm loving this, said so am I. <laughs> you think we've just been gluttons to punishment. But actually, that's part of it, you know, and the part of, you know, you get a gig and, oh, what have we got? Going to lock up, you know, put all the stuff in the van, what you need for the day, you know. Sometimes, yeah. uh, you know, it's not a van, it's a Volvo, by the way. I, I don't have vans. I just have the road beast. The Volvo road beast, very famous, uh, in, in synonymous with my playing, synonymous with my playing, but um, always had Volvos. Uh, they're brilliant. 
I can't say anything better than Volvos. Volvos and the drums go very well together. <laughs> <laughs> I can get anything into a Volvo, anything into a Volvo. I can't drive it, I can't get into a drive it, I can get anything in it. It's, it's brilliant. They're definitely a drummer's car. That idea of, you know, music as, you know, as a lifestyle, it's not just a career, it's not, it's yeah. not about the money, it's music as a lifestyle. You, of all the musicians I've met, you, you embody that more than anyone anyone else I know, I think. Thank you, Mark. Um, Cheers, man. And, and you really, you know, it's it's sort of, it's everything, it's everything, isn't it? It's, it's the playing, the playing's there, it's astounding yes, but that. it's it's also getting on with people and having a good time and just enjoying being part yeah. of everything that's going on and that even that relationship if you're working in the theatre and being part of the company and you know uh getting to yeah. know the actors and obviously with your background as an actor um it's just I, I i think more than anyone else i know you you just completely embody that and you can see how important it is to you Thanks, mate. It, it is. I, I think I'm very. Uh, I've been very lucky in this business. I've, I've had a really, really good career, uh, and I'm still. I'm still doing it. Obviously, not at the moment, but um, I, I think that that thing of of I'm. I always get up. Always look forward to the day. And I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I've been on some tours, and you know, normally two thirds of the way through a tour, people are missing home. You know, and yeah. people have bust ups and. You know, I, I was talking to a lovely old friend of mine who sadly died, Martin Roach, fantastic bass player. And he was telling a story about when he did Panto uh, with Dana when she won the Eurovision Song Contest or something. And they started a, a, they started a Panto in Blackpool. And they went and, and, and then they went, did a tour for a whole year of Panto. And you said, in the middle of, imagine in the middle of July, you're going and still doing Panto. And he said, and they got back and then the next year they went back to Blackpool and they did the, the finish season in another Panto in Blackpool where they started. And he said there were about seven divorces, you know, there were people, you know, there were, you know people having sort of going into rehab. But, you know, they're, 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 I've been on tours and you can see people's like heads going down. And I always think it's, it's not my job, but you... you Musicians are a very tight, tight knit, knit bunch. I'm, I'm very lucky. I've got some incredibly good mates, um, yeah, I've, and I've, I've been working them for years. And we know each other. We know each other's playing. It's like putting on a couple of pair of shoes. But we look after each other. We really look out for each other. And it's like having a family. Uh, and that's the one thing I've really missed. I think over this lockdown. I mean, I still keep in touch with them, obviously, all the time and stuff. But it's the one thing. It's, it's the crack. I think the Irish call it. It's that. It's that camaraderie that when you're on a gig, I was my very good friend Mike, Mark Alice. We went for a, a socially distanced walk on the downs, part of our hourly exercise, which you're allowed to do, um, and it's very close. And he, only only what, 500 yards from my house, the ups and downs. So uh, yes, it wasn't illegal, as it was perfectly legal. And I've consulted my lawyers, and it's all right. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you do sue me, I, I know where you live. Uh, um, yeah, and we were chatting. We were just saying that, that that's I've grown up with Mark. You know, we were very, very and he's a fantastic drummer. He's Harry Hill's drummer, actually. But and we were just chatting about that's the one thing we miss is is you know being on gigs, the, the banter, mm-hmm. uh, and and yeah, I do miss that. I miss the playing. I miss the banter. I miss the pub. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just that's a vital part of it, and the playing is is as well that that creativity. I am lucky that I can. I do a lot of remote teaching in the weekend. I've got some amazing students and you feel that you you owe it to them because they're they're stuck in front of a screen all day doing their school work or whatever and some of the old ones and you know doing doing lectures and things and you're thinking that's really harsh you know it's hard for me i know but it, it, i still have to i think it's probably why i find it so tiring it's different when you're one-on-one but when you're looking to a screen and you're trying to you know in, in make that half an hour or, or an hour lesson with them really something mm-hmm. um you have to work twice as hard and 
but I think I owe it to them because for them it's that, that half an hour, hour in a week is something that they really look forward to and, and they get something out of it. So it's sometimes it's you, you have to force yourself to, to be the smiley one. Like when you're on a tour and you're really tired and you think, okay, let's, like, let's do something stupid and, and, and make everyone laugh and sort of, you know. And I think I, I like this profession. I could do anything else. I could have been a geography teacher or an actor or a, 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 <laughs> a millionaire city stockbroker. But I chose this profession and, and I, I love it. And I think if people see that you enjoy it, it's, it's an important thing. People like to have me on a gig because they know it would be fun. I'm not the best player in the world by, by a long chalk. But they like me on a gig because they know it, we'll have fun. Yeah. And it's not all about fun. I mean, that's not about sort of being Larry and, 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 and stupid. You, you get the job done. You do yes. the job to the best yeah. of your ability, of course. But it's the, uh, after the job's done, you finish working, mate, and you can then be as mad as you want. <laughs> 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 and I'm, I'm, slowing it down. I'm slowing down a bit in my old age. I have to go out drinking with a younger man who's set of jump leads now. Okay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that... The whole thing about, you know, when people do get a bit down or people start complaining and that can sort of breed a little bit as well when in that touring environment, especially. Yeah, I, I can't wait, you know, when, when this is all done, this whole virus thing and we get back to some sort of normality for the first person to moan about it <laughs> just so you can jump on it straight away. Because after this, like, yeah, I mean, you can't moan about doing anything musical ever again surely no absolutely i mean i just hope that when it comes out of this it doesn't become because it's it, the last few years it's become a little bit um you know dog eat dog because yes. there are less yeah. and less gigs and, and people and, and what i hate to do is i mean uh, uh, social media is good i mean I, I use social media and i, I use it as a again as a as a vehicle of, for spreading stupidity and, and fun and laugh laughter rather than you know sadness and, and the negativity but um what I don't like is a lot of the youngsters now, because of the you know that the, the, they do. If someone you know, you know, they say you're only as good as your last gig, but there seems to be a sort of a thing of, of if someone cocks up on a gig that they'll let that okay, it goes around social media like you know wildfire. We never did that in the old days. We looked after yeah. each other. It's a tight knit thing. I say to a lot of my students is that as well, if, if they're going into the business, a lot of them do. But, if they're going to the business, the, the most important thing is, you, is your friends, your circle of friends. Uh, you know, and if the phone goes and it's a gig and it's Elton and I can't do it because I've got a, a teaching gig, uh, <laughs> I would immediately phone up one of my mates. I say, listen, I can't do it, but give me five minutes and I'll get someone who can. Yeah. And I think a lot of the, my students who are, are fellow pros now, they've learned that. It's that, it's that thing, it's loyalty. It's, it's not only having a good, it's loyalty. And, and, and people respect that. I mean, I've, turned, I've had to turn down gigs before in the past that are great gigs because I've said to someone I will do something and I know that if I let them down, it, would, it, would, it doesn't matter. I mean, if they're really good mates and if it's something absolutely ridiculous and you, you're, you're honest, you go to them, listen, I've been offered this, I would obviously honour your gig, but, but what do you think? Yeah. And nine times out of ten, people know you and they know your loyalty because you've earned that loyalty. I remember many years ago, um, I had Paul Moran's fantastic. Um, I've done lots of library stuff with Paul, and he's, a, he's a Van Morrison's MD, and he, he tried to get me on a couple of gigs, and then he, then he phoned up, and he, he got me on um, Van's. And when I first started working with Van, it was um, the uh, Duets album. Uh, and he, he phoned me up, and he said, they're doing this, this album, we'd love you to do percussion on it, and it's great. And they were recording it at Knopfler's, Mark Knopfler's studios. And uh, British Grove, um, which is amazing studios. And, uh, but they wanted it all done. Van wanted it all done in a week uh, with the band all in situ playing at the same time. And it was my daughter's birthday and I always go down for that. I don't miss mm -hmm. that. So I said to Paul, I said, mate, I'm really sorry. I, I can't do uh, the first two days of film because I'm, I'm 
it's my daughter's birthday and I always go down for that. And I've, said, I've always said, I'm going down. I can't turn that down for anything. And he said, mate, oh, he said, I totally understand. He said, I know you're a big family man. He said, uh, oh, well, I'll try and get on something else, you know. And it was, that was great. And I put the phone down and I was like, oh, you yeah, know, what a shame that happened to me then. Um, and then uh, uh, he phoned me up an hour later. He said, I spoke to Van and uh, Van went, I forget, I can't swear here. So <laughs> you have to imagine an Irish swear word. <laughs> but he said, uh, like, who's he working for that's bigger than me? You know, he said, no, it's his daughter's birthday and he can't miss that. And Paul says, first time he's heard Van go quiet on the phone, he went, oh, he said, well, that's a man of honour. I said, we'll bring him next week and he'll do overdubs. <laughs> and I did. And it was just really? me, Van, it was just me, Van, and uh, Hayden, the, the producer, and, and, and Paul. And he was, he was lovely. What a lovely man. You know, I expected, because yeah. he's supposed to be a bit of a, you know, can be a bit cantankerous, but he was, he was nothing but, but really nice. In fact, we had some fantastic times in, this, in the studio. I was booked for a few days. We did it in one. And um, the first first track, I mean, Russell went in and met him, and he's, he was in a deer stalk, a very short little man. And he said, and I said, thank you very much for, for, for you know, moving the, moving the sessions for me. And he said, no, no, thank you. He said, you're a man. Oh, he said, not many people. He said, when, and he was talking a story about when his uh, daughter grew up. He said, I, you know, when my daughter was that age, she said, I was away touring, but she had ponies and people looking after her. He said, but she actually wanted me, you know, she, yeah. she wanted me, you know. And he said, that, that hit, hit a nerve. He said, anyway, you're a good lad. He said, D- uh, did you borrow a good birthday present? I said, I will do when you pay me for this session. <laughs> <laughs> and he's laughing. I went out and I, I, was, I, was, I, was, I went in the first thing and, and he said, he said, what you, uh, I was in the booth and, and I could see them on the camera. They could see me on the camera. I could see them through the, the, the glass. And it was a track. And I had no music. It was just playing along with what was already there. And I, I, he, said, he said, it needs an earthy shaker. And I, I'm going through all my... I've got every single shaker in the world. But I'm going through it and I'm getting to lower and lower. And he goes, no, no, anything else. And for a laugh, I picked up this rain stick. It's like a plastic rain stick filled with ball bearings. And it's really heavy. And it's, you can show it to the students because you can see all the ball bearings going through, and it's like it's like the, you know, like the, the um, Mexican rain stick thing, and it's it sounds great, but it's very heavy. But I picked it up for a laugh, and I shook it. It goes, and he goes, that's perfect. And I'm going, oh god. So I'm in, I'm standing there, and I'm holding it in one hand. It's really heavy. I'm sort of shaking, and this track's going on and on. And I get two hands, and I'm looking into the camera, going. How much is this going on? And they're looking at the and Paul's going holding up five, five more minutes, and we get to the end. I'm dying. It's like so heavy. We get to the end, and I just finished. And Van went, Oh, that's great. He said, We'll do another pass, and I can't tell you what I said, but but yeah, it was it was a good it was a good time. There was a lovely story as well. There was a Joss Stone track, and he said, What do you think of knees on this? I said, Try it. Triangle? It's, a, it's, it's not the Van Morrison Symphony Orchestra. Triangle. <laughs> and I said, well, I think it does. You know, I said, it needs to be really, really, you know, uh, you know high up in the EQ, just and it will mirror the bass line. I think it will you know, give voice space for a voice. And he's going, oh, go on, that triangle. Anyway, I'm looking at Paul, and Paul's sort of going, oh, God, you know, <laughs> I'm bitten off more you can chew. So he's just going to record a bit. So I recorded, like, about eight bars. And he said, come on. I said, but it needs to be really, you know, see, so well, I want to sit at the desk then. You want to, you know, I've got what to do at this desk. And I'm sort of changing the EQs. So it's really, really high, you know. And, and then he suddenly says, I said, that's okay. He said, okay, play the track. Play the track without the triangle. So he plays some eight bars, and he's listening there. And he goes, okay, play the track with the triangle. And I go, okay. play the track with the triangle. And it all goes quiet. And he looks... He's so quiet. He goes, you're a genius. <laughs> I was going, yeah. <laughs> and, funny, and I said, do you know, I used to play the triangle in the Bermuda Symphony Orchestra. 
I said, but that work's disappearing. He looked at me and said, get back in the booth. <laughs> he was a very funny man. He was a nice guy, actually. We were, it, uh, I was expecting to go out and have a pint with him at lunchtime, but he said, let's go. But it was up, uh, it was the, 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 the meal was upstairs in the beautiful studios. It was all laid yeah. on. And he said, come and sit next to me, let's talk. And he was really nice. He was asking about Tula Clark, because I was in her band for a, for a, for a long time. And, yeah, and, and uh, Sashley Stell. Yeah, he was a very nice man. I, I, I know that people say, but I think he, 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 I found him to be, I always say, I always, always in this business as well, I speak how you find, not how people tell you. Because yeah. there's, there's a lot of people I've worked with who I've found to be absolutely lovely people. You know, and you get them on a bad day, we all have bad days. Um, and that sort of their reputation is tarnished like that and I think it's just a shame because a lot of people are absolutely lovely and then other people are absolutely <laughs> absolutely <laughs> I can't tell you I won't mention who but majority of the people I've worked with particularly the more famous they are normally the nicer they are and yeah. I've found but not always the case but yeah. Did you yeah. did you tour with Van Morrison as well, or was it no, just the no, no? Stuff? I had just the recording stuff. He, he's yeah. um, a very, very lovely friend of mine. Is doing a lovely lady called Tina Tina Lyle, who's a superb percussionist, and she did. I, I, it was eight months in in the states. I, I, the thing is, I can't do touring. Paul knows that, so it's yeah. it's not. Um, I, you know, those little things that come along are great. I mean, but Tina Tina was with him many many years ago, and she's fantastic. She's such a great uh, vibraphone player and percussionist. She's just amazing and a great singer. And it was really good. She she had a uh, she would she had a bit of a ill health a, a, a while ago, and she's luckily over that. But it was really nice to see her back, you know, doing where she where she should be really doing that mm. that gig, which is fa- fabulous. But great. yeah, yeah, I feel like you've given loads of great advice already uh, for particularly people starting out in this. But I just wonder: is there anything? Is there like a you know? a single piece of advice that you would either give to yourself when you were younger, first starting out, something that you wish you'd known then, or maybe to someone in a similar position now, what's the most important thing for someone embarking on this career? I, I think, I think that you, whatever, whenever you think that you, you know something, there's always something else. You, you, you can always push yourself. You always, you, you never stop learning. I think it was Arthur Rubenstein, the famous pianist. I think he was 99. He was doing a, an interview with the BBC or something, and, and uh, it was supposed to be a half-an-hour interview, and he got to the end of half an hour, and the interview was going well, and then Rubenstein said, uh, all right, I've got to go now. You know, and he said, oh, you've got to go. I said, yes, I've got to practice. And the, the guy laughed. I said, practice? He said, yeah, 99. Went, yes, he said, you can always improve. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is something that you, you, you can. And if, if I was a younger player, yeah, practice, 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 practice. And when, you, when, you know, when the cows come home, put them away and do some more practice. You, know, this, <laughs> yeah. you, you can't. I wish I'd done more practice when I was younger. Yeah. I did a lot, but I could have done more. I, when I was at music college as well. I mean, I... I uh, I was at college with Evelyn Glennie, right. a famous uh, percussionist, very amazing. And she was practicing, I would say she was in the percussion room. It used to become a joke, she was in the you, However early you got in, she'd be in the percussion room mm. practicing. Eight hours a day, absolutely dedicated. And that's why she's one of the, the world's top, you know, top vibraphone yeah. um, uh, percussionists, uh, marimba players. And I, at college, as everyone that goes to college, you know, first year you just getting drunk and, and sort of getting away with the bare minimum. Second year going, oh, I think to do some work. Get to the third year, oh, God. <laughs> it's all this I just got to start working. But, um, yeah, as much practice you can do and in all different styles. Uh, and and, and you, there are so many different things. You know, this Indian drum, tablet drum, samba drumming, uh, all the different techniques. You, you, can't, you can't, there's so many of them. This is why percussion is so fun. 
mm-hmm. you, you will always learn something new. I had mm-hmm. I had a um, <laughs> to do a thing a campanologist thing. It was for a uh, it was for a, a, a workshop. You know, one of these team building things. And you get paid loads of money for you know. <laughs> for I do sample workshops. You know, for t- corporate team building. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sam got to do it. Oh well, you do that bit. <laughs> you play that part. Oh yes. And then, and then some bloke comes in and says, Oh, this is all about team building. It's not. It's for them having good fun. You know, a bit of fun, and, and they love it. And at the end of the meal, they have to do a big samba, and it's 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 mayhem. It's great. And you know, they're they're nice. Those corporate things were were fabulous. But I did one, and I've got asked by this uh, agent thing, can I do a bell ringing one? I've never done bell ringing in my life. So anyway, a friend of mine's mum had a set, proper set she used to use for the WI, and I went and she showed me how to do it, and some very simple ones. And so that was a whole new thing. I had to go home and learn how to do bell ringing and, and how to do the proper damping. It's not as easy as just hitting a bell. It's a, lot, it's a proper technique to it. Mm. And it was quite, it was quite good fun. But um, so you know, again, that's something I you know is percussion, but you, it's an area you'd never do, and you never stop learning. And that's a nice thing. So I think if you're a young player, young percussionist, always practice, practice. You've got the internet. My God, there's so much on the internet. I mean, when I was growing up, nothing like that. One school computer, and only the, you know, if you're in the computer club, you could use it. And it was spend three hours programming something in for a little little stick man to go across the screen and go <laughs> beep beep, and that was it. And, oh, hurrah! That's why I didn't want to be. I hate computers. Even now, I'm a complete technophobe. But um, the the uh, yeah, that's that's the thing. You see, you know, look if you if you're into sort of you know, I don't know if you're into. Um, Oh, I don't know, you want to know about how to play the Shakirs properly or, you know, what are the instruments you, you want to play. Look, at it's, it's a mind of information. Some of it is rubbish, but a lot of it is, is really, really mm-hmm. good. And, 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 and be involved. And also, play as much music as you can when you're young. Go and do amateur dramatics. Go and play for the local youth orchestra. Play, go and play in the church. Go and do anything. Go and, you know, in the, in the old days, in the exchange of mark, go and see local bands or, or go to the local music shop and say, you know, drummer required for that. Go and do those things. Because you never know who's at that gig and you never know where a gig is going to learn, uh, run to. I look at my own career. I mean, I'm, I'm, in, I'm at school. I am happen to be a, a play with one of my music master at school in his local amp, uh, uh, choir. And then, he, you know, he says, oh, you can play the drums. Uh, I get to gig, gig with Jonathan Cohen. Next thing, you know, you get a Western show about it. I mean, that's yeah. ridiculous how you write. You can't write that. Yeah, but it is amazing. I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, my career is littered with things like that. You never know... So you always give 100%. That's the other thing as well, whatever yeah. gig it is. Even if it's a gig you think is below you, you go in with a good attitude. That's yes. often the case as well. When, you, when, you, when I was very successful, people didn't want to phone you because they think that it would be below you. And you go, well, no, it's a gig's a gig. I mean, well, there is, the, <laughs> there is a slight cut-off point, but um, I'm not <laughs> going to do a German Empire band in an RAF Menai seven hours for 50 quid in the back of a transit. <laughs> I have done that once and I will never do that again. <laughs> when I was at music college, yeah, seven, seven and a half hours there, long gig in Lederhosen, seven and a half hours back, got to the academy, 50 quid, yeah. <laughs> okay, but they're, they're the character building gigs, you know, you have to do those. It makes you who yeah. you are and you rip, that's why you appreciate the good gigs. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's all built on reputation, isn't it? The whole thing, like, yeah, no matter absolutely. what you do, turn up, be yes. be pleasant, do a yeah. good job, and you never know what will come from it at some point further down the line. Very much. And be careful of your reputation. I mean, when you're young and you're a bit leery, you know, I, I've done that. I've, I've worked with a, uh, with a singer, a lovely singer, Paul, um, and he'd never used me. And apparently, you know, drums poke, say, oh, Ozzy's great, he's great at that. He's great at the Sinatra stuff. Yeah, OK. And then eventually I had to work for him. It was the first time I met. And he, he said... But you're so nice," he said. I, "I thought from all the stories you'd be a hooligan." I said, "Well, I am a hooligan, but only after the gig." <laughs> <laughs> and I 
I said, what stories are they? And he told the story. I said, no, nah, it was much worse than that. <laughs> I said, well, it was after the gig. But that's the thing. I mean, you, 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 you had, I mean, sometimes I, I don't care. I mean, I probably told a lot of fixers in the West End, you know, exactly what I think of them. Tell them I won't work for them again, you know, which is, people go, what? But you, you know, you can, you can do that if you give, you, well, I'm not going to. I don't work with people I don't like. And that's yeah. the end of the story. I mean, that, but... You can't really do that when you're starting off in the career. You've got to, you've got to kiss a few butts on the way up if you're young, I suppose. But I never really did because I was lucky because I, I, I sort of got to that point without having to do that. And I've never picked up the phone and phoned anyone for work. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I've never had to do that. Mm-hmm. Even times which, you know, when you're not working so much, I still wouldn't do that because, you know, you've got your pride. And, and, and things will turn up, like Mr. McCorber says, something always turns up. I can remember those times, you know, you just paid your, you know, your tax bills coming up the end of January and, and the days before I did Panto and stuff and there's no, all the studios are shut and there's no work unless you're doing a West End show and suddenly um, it's you're in January and you've got nothing in the diary and you've got the tax bill coming in you go, no! And then the, uh, the gig, the, you know, the god of gig, you know, he good. They do the old, and the old, the old, and then the phone will ring and it'll be out and say, Oz! World Tour, <laughs> Ray Cooper, with Ray Cooper. Yeah, come on. Yeah, we, we can all dream. <laughs> one day, Oz, one day. Yeah, one day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just finally, and I, I think this will be a tough question, but have you got a, have you got a career highlight? Uh, yeah, um, I've got lots. Uh, bizarre, this is a bit of a bizarre one. Um, I think probably... Working with Dame Edna, uh, I did. Uh, I'd, I'd never thought I'd do panto, and then because I thought it'd be too busy, and it was looked to being being people used to look look down their nose at it. But I remember I was supposed to be doing a tour with Pet Clark, and then she got a gig in Hollywood, uh, Hollywood, um, uh, Broadway, um, doing Sunset Boulevard, I think. And so her MD, a guy called Kenny Clayton, who's a very very close friend, I've known him for many years. He's uh, bizarrely he went to, to music college at the same time as my mum. And I didn't realise they fancied each other. They didn't know that, that you know, then I was in a gig at Ronnie's and, and they would chat. And my mum said, were you the, the boy with curly hair? Oh, yeah. He said, were you, were you Joyce? Were you were Joyce Davis? Because that was a maiden name. What, the, the girl with the little ring? Yeah. Oh, he said. Uh, and my mum went, I used to fancy you. And Kenny went, I used to fancy you. And I was thinking, oh, my God, Kenny could be my dad. You know, it's very bizarre. <laughs> Absolutely bizarre. But, um, yeah, he's a very good friend. And anyway, he said, Oz, he said, do you want to come and do a, um, a panto? He said, I've got this in. It uh, was with Anita Harris and Tommy Boyd and one of the uh, Nolan sisters. And it was only local. And uh, did it with uh, my, uh, couple of my best mate, Don Palmer on bass and Andy Ratz on keys. And, 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 and I, it was only what I'd done. And I absolutely loved it. I had a ball. And at the end of January, I actually had money in my account to pay the tax bill. <laughs> so I, I called it my tax holiday. And then I got offered a few with, with Gary Hind and, and um, Kudos. And then I ended up at Wimbledon Theatre. So I did 20 years there at Wimbledon. And I loved it. I turned down West End shows, you know, used to take time off West End shows to do, do panto. People think you're mental. But it, I love it. I absolutely love panto. It was, I was made for it. It's, it's yeah. my skill set, you know. I was totally, playing, as, playing. especially as a drummer and you all yeah. those visual cues and stuff and, and sort of yeah. having a bit of you know, creative license with it. In the old days, it was a real art and, yeah. and it was an art form that I saw from the best and learned from that and, and being able to play timps and attuned while you're playing kit. Um, you know, lots of people, that's my, one of my reputations. I was known as Panto Man, had my own <laughs> cape and everything. But, um, uh, and, and I loved that. And, you know, some of, and very lovely, one of the, my young uh, protégés, a guy called Dakin Lee, 
Uh, when I moved on from, um, uh, after 20 years, I mean, you were part of the furniture, at Wimbledon Theatre, it's a beautiful theatre, but I passed that on to, to Dakian, and, and it was lovely, because he, he sat in the pit for eight years watching me doing it, and I think yeah. it was my, my students. And it was, I went and saw him play the panel, and it was just like watching a, a young me, and it was so lovely, you know, the yeah. passing it forward. I've had my days of doing it, but um, my career highlight was working with Dame Edna at Wimbledon Theatre. She only ever did, wanted to do uh, one panto, because that was the first theatre that... Um, Barry Humphreys ever, uh, his auto ever performed that, you know, Shakespeare yeah. play being a you know, spear carrier. Um, but he wanted to do one panto before he retired and he wanted to do it at Women's Theatre. So I was there for that one panto. And I can't tell you, that was an absolute career. Every night I was wetting myself. <laughs> the guy, and, and, it's, and, it, and what it is, I mean, I think it's very the affinity between comedy and timing. Mm. And a drummer, you know, it's all about timing. But when you see someone with impeccable comic timing, it doesn't matter what he does, just one raise of an eyebrow and that's it. But it's timing. Yeah. And to watch him for, for 70 performances every night in that pit. And he knew it, you know, I'd be on anything he'd do, I'd be on it like a rash. But it was, I mean, you know, in the right way. I mean, I hate <laughs> to see drummers who overdo it. It's, it's, yeah. it's wrong. It has to be correct and it has to be. And no electronics. Every effect has to be done properly no bloody electronics i never use that crap <laughs> if you can't re- if you can't re- recreate it with all the all the toys i've got then 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 hang up you know burn your drumsticks go and become a monk you know do it properly <laughs> that's all my students will tell you but yeah that was my career highlight and isn't that weird i mean that's a you, you know we, we okay we backed him he's not a singer but he was that for me was an absolute being in the, and with a great band i mean it was a great show anyway but yeah being, being backing him and it, it was a weird thing but that was i can look back now and that beautiful theatre to do that, that was definitely a career highlight. There's been yeah. a few few others, obviously. But the best gig I've ever done, people often say that, has just been a dad. I know you're going to be a dad soon. I am, I've yeah. got two beautiful kids, um, George and Rosie, and they're the light of my life. Best gig I've ever done by miles. But the most expensive, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> the most costly. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, that's that, and, and that sounds a bit twee, but it is true. I know you're going to be a dad soon. Uh, June, isn't it? June, yeah, 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 June this that's year. The, that's the biggest adventure you'll ever have, mate. And that's the hard thing about being this, doing this business is that um, you know, to get that balance right between you know, a musician when you're working at very unsociable times yeah. and family. It's, it's I've, I've not managed to. I mean, I've been married twice. I'm very happy married. But, um, yeah, and I don't regret that at all. But it's very, very difficult to be in, in this business and, and give the right amount of time. But I didn't get it right twice. And, and you know, bless my ex-wives for putting up with me working all those hours and it does take its toll so yeah uh, that's a different kind of fish we don't want to start <laughs> talking about music then we start going down you for know family time. therapy yeah yeah I'm, i charge a lot more for family therapy than i do for being a family therapist and doing a drummer <laughs> but there isn't any porterage so the porterage is good that sort of weighs it out <laughs> Oh, it's been so good chatting to you and just yeah, hearing all, thanks, all those, yeah. those stories like um this could be this could have been a whole series in itself, but because um, <laughs> yeah, so many I, more I, of them. I was going to say to you, you said often oh, make some notes. I, I didn't because I was in a rush to get here today because I, I took mum's hospital. So um, I, I'd written a few things down, and I got nothing. So I was just winging it today. But I wrote a few things, and I've just realised I haven't uh, any of those things on that bit of paper. I haven't even <laughs> said. Probably a good thing. I think uh, you won't have the lawyers knocking on your door, so it should be all right. <laughs> But we'll definitely do a follow-up sometime in the future. <laughs> uh-oh, um, uh-oh. <laughs> thank you so much, mate. It's been, it's been really, really great to chat to you. Really enjoyed that. Thanks, mate. Thanks, thanks for a lot. Uh, yeah, thanks ever so much. And, um, yeah, uh, hope the, hope the uh, listeners enjoy it. <laughs> I'm sure they will.
<laughs> if they do, if they do enjoy it, I've been Mike Osborne. If they haven't, I've been Ralph Sammons. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. We recorded that remotely in February 2021. And don't forget that there are new episodes of this podcast available every Monday with a different musician sharing insights into their life and career in the music industry. If you've enjoyed the episode, don't forget to hit subscribe. And if you've got time, leaving a really quick rating or even a short review uh, can really help boosts the performance of the podcast. See you next week.